you have your Bible, find Revelation chapter 10. This morning we're going to finish up the third section, the third of seven sections in the book of Revelation, which means, if you've been paying carefully to what I've said in weeks past, we're actually going to cover more than one chapter today. (laughs) It may sound daunting, it may sound overly ambitious, but if you've read these chapters ahead of time, uh, it's clear that these two chapters are meant to be seen together and to be thought about together. And, uh, and you can sort of tell by, we're going to be looking at chapters 10 and 11, you can sort of tell by how short chapter 10 is. It's only 11 verses. And I think then that we can think about them together and do so in a relatively normal amount of time. So again, we're going to finish up this third section of Revelation with these two chapters. And then, by way of announcements also, if you're here next week, this is going to be the last week this year until the next semester that we're going to be thinking about the book of Revelation. So I know you guys are going to be going home. So we'll, we'll pick back up in this study when you come back in January. Next, next Sunday morning, which will be our last Sunday school of the year, we'll think about just a different uh, text that has to do with Advent uh, next Sunday. All right. Just to remind you of the main feature of this third section of Revelation. The theme has been the blowing of the seven trumpets. Um, and the, these trumpets that have been blowing, we saw in chapters 8 and 9, six of those seven trumpets. These trumpets symbolize um, partial and preliminary measures of God's judgment of a sinful world. Partial and preliminary measures of judgment that will sort of continuously be uh, active and present in the world until Jesus comes back, right? At, At which time, when he comes back, the full measure of his judgment will be poured out on the world, and that's going to be symbolized in the book of Revelation by the pouring out of the seven bowls of his judgment. Um, and again, these, these trumpets are, are just partial and small measures of God's judgment that are meant to be warnings against sinners, to, 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 meant to lead them to repentance before the full outpouring of his judgment comes. We're not to the bowls yet, but we've already, again, we've already looked at chapters 8 and 9 and the blowing of the uh, first six of the seven trumpets. We're going to look at two chapters today, 10 and 11, and you might expect the, the seventh trumpet to be blown here in chapter 10, but it's not. You won't even find it in the first half of chapter 11. You'll find it at the very end of the chapter, uh, the very last scene of this third section of the book. And uh, so, of course... Trying to cover this much ground in, in one Sunday, we won't be able to unpack every detail of these chapters, but I do want to try to gain a good understanding, nevertheless, of the message of them. And just to show you how we're going to break it up before we read it together, and, and, and also to illustrate why I think these two things are supposed to be, these two chapters are supposed to be meant to be seen together, here are the, the verse divisions of the, the little chunks that we're going to focus on individually. So I think that uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 7, is one, is one uh, section of this passage. And then the second, passage is, uh, second section is going to run from chapter 10, verse 8, all the way through chapter 11, verse 14. Okay, that's, that, that's why I think this chapter division is in a wonky place, because there's a, there's a continuous scene and train of thought from chapter 10, verse 8, all the way to chapter 11, verse 14. 
And then the final section, the third section, is going to be verses 15 through the end of chapter 11. So that's, that's how we're going to break it up to think through this. But before we dive in, we need to read it together. Again, because chapter 10 isn't very long, it shouldn't take us too long to read both chapters together. So if you've found Revelation 10, let's <clears throat> begin reading in chapter 10, verse 1. We'll read both chapters. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the, on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to the sound <coughs> to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I looked, and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes if anyone would harm them this is how he is doomed to be killed they have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire and when they have finished their testimony the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, come some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. 
But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we ask that you would give us minds to understand what you would have us to see in this passage today. Help us to understand what you were conveying to us through the Apostle John. Would you then give us hearts to embrace the truth that we see and wills to obey what it admonishes us to do. I pray that you would give, give me the help that I need to teach and teach clearly. Would you please give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to us in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I've already told you how I think this, this passage breaks up the three chunks of of, uh, of verses that go together. So we're going to look at this first section here, chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. So this chapter begins like we've seen a lot of chapters in, in Revelation begin with, with um, uh, a vision from another angel. A lot of chapters open up with an angel uh, doing something. Um, and we see that again here. Look again at verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire and I want you to think about that description that we see right there very carefully because not only does it show you that we're introduced to another angel just like in a lot of other chapters but the, the description given of that angel is is in a lot of ways unlike descriptions we've seen of other angels in fact, the, the, the description given there in verse 1 and in later verses as well have caused some interpreters to debate whether this is just an angel that closely represents Christ or if this angel is, is actually Christ himself. Uh, when you look carefully at the descriptions that are given in verse 1, you can understand why. So let's do that. First of all, in verse 1, it's not just another angel. It's a mighty angel. And he was coming down from heaven, and then a string of other descriptions ensue. This mighty angel is described in verse 1 as being, first of all, wrapped in a cloud. Wrapped in a cloud. And the, the interesting thing about that is that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the presence of God himself 
is, is, is represented with a cloud. Uh, just a few examples from Old and New Testaments. In Exodus 13, 21, the Lord went before them uh, by day in a pillar of cloud along the way. In Exodus 19, 16, as Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord himself, it says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Just one more in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35 about the tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So over and over again in the Old Testament, the glory and the presence of God himself was demonstrated by a cloud. And to take it into the New Testament, uh, you, th you think about uh, the, the transfiguration of Jesus. There was a cloud there on the mountain of transfiguration. Or when the, when the New Testament describes the second coming of Jesus, how does... How is Jesus described as, as going to come when he comes? He's going to be coming on the clouds of heaven, right? So this mighty angel in Revelation 10, 1 is described as being wrapped in a cloud. You begin to wonder, even with that first description, is this angel more than just an angel? And verse 1 says, in addition to being wrapped in a cloud, it says there was a rainbow over his head. And we're in Revelation chapter 10. Every other time we've seen a rainbow... In the book of Revelation, where has it been? Around the throne of God himself. And now I add to that, that, that uh, it says again of this mighty angel that not only was he wrapped in a cloud, and not only did he have a rainbow over his head, but his face was like the sun. And that this same language has already been used of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. Revelation 1, 16 read, uh, said about Jesus, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And of course, I already mentioned the Mount of Transfiguration, but when, when Jesus was transfigured before his disciples, um, his face shone like the sun there. So this, another description of the angel that sounds an awful lot like Jesus. And I don't believe that it's mere coincidence that again in verse 1, his legs were like, Pillars of fire. Pillars of fire, which is, as we already mentioned, in the Exodus story, the Lord went before them by, in a cloud by day, but a pillar of fire by night. You put all these things together, and they seem to indicate something different about this angel than all of the other angels that we've come across so far in Revelation. This one seems to be divine, at least described in divine descriptions. And then as you keep reading, you get beyond verse 1 especially in verse 3, when this mighty angel who's been given divine description, when he speaks in verse 3, it, John describes it as, by saying, the seven thunders sounded. The seven thunders sounded. Um, now, we're not told, and we'll come back to this, we're not told here what, what they... <laughs> with specificity what they were. Um, we'll come back to that. But interestingly, in the Old Testament, what, and we've already alluded to it in a, in a verse I've already mentioned, what in the Old Testament is often uh, described with the imagery of thunder, the voice of the Lord? We saw that 
uh, already in Exodus 19 when Moses is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. And in addition to the cloud, they heard the sound of thunder at his voice speaking. Or here's another reference that is, is I think, particularly behind this passage right here. Psalm 29. Psalm 29. In Psalm 29, it says, the, glor- the, the, the God of glory thunders. The God of glory thunders. Now, what does Psalm 29 mean by the God of glory thundering? Well, if you read that, if you read that psalm, after it says the God of glory thunders, it mentions, it proceeds to refer to the voice of the Lord seven times. So put all of this together, and it seems like a mountain of evidence that this mighty angel in Revelation 10 is Christ himself. And when this angel speaks, it is Christ the Lord speaking. And as to what these thunders are, right, he he called out, and the seven thunders sounded. What with specificity they are, um, we're not told. We were told what the seven lampstands were in the first section. We were told what the, the seven seals were in the second section. We're told what the seven trumpets are in this section. But as soon as the seven thunders are mentioned in verse 3, what happens in verse 4? They are sealed up. They are left unrevealed to us. Don't write what they are. Verse 4 says, And when the seven thunders had sounded, and I was about to write, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. All right, now, to me, that's a humbling thought. The seven lampstands represented churches dealing with um, different sins and weaknesses meaning to represent the weaknesses that churches will, will deal with throughout the whole church age until Jesus comes back. The seven seals represented principles that will be at, at work in the world throughout the church age until Jesus comes back. And those seals were often persecution of believers, um, uh, hardship operating for believers all in the world throughout the church age until Jesus comes back. The seven trumpets, as we've said so many times, represent uh, principles of God's judgment of the wicked that are at work in the world throughout the church age until Jesus comes back. They all follow that same pattern. They are things that are going to be operating in the world. Whatever they represent, they're things operating in the world throughout the church age until Jesus comes back. In keeping with those repeated patterns, the seven thunders seem likewise to represent some kind of principle that is going to be operating in the world by the ordination of God, no doubt, but we simply don't know what it is. Right? We're not told. It was sealed up. Here's here's one takeaway from that. One common tendency in people is that we often disbelieve what we don't understand or can't verify. But here is the Lord telling us by mentioning the seven thunders that there are things operating in the world by his ordination of which we are completely ignorant. The only way we would know is for him to tell us what those things are. But the verdict here to John is seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. The first half of chapter 10 reminds us that God is sovereign over 
the world he has made and the movement of history in it. And he is working in history, in the world, in ways that we don't know. And he will bring, he will bring all things to his appointed end. And it's with that assurance. It's, it, we've got to have that foundation and that assurance uh, to lead into what's coming up. Having seen the first six trumpets grow with intensity as you move through the trumpets, you're now in anticipation of this final trumpet and the end of all things that is going to come with the return of Christ. The angel says in verse 6, there's not going to be any more delay. Remember that, that God is sovereign over his world and he's working in ways that we can't even understand, but he is sovereign over it. And so know that. There is now going to be no more delay. The stage is set for the final trumpet. No more delay, he says. Which brings us to the second part of our passage. Chapter 10, verse 8, through chapter 11, verse 14. Verse 8 begins with the word, then. All right. No more delay. You've been teed up to expect what's about to happen. Again, verses 6 and 7 said, Announced that there will be no more delay before the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel. No more delay, to me, sounds like no more delay. It sounds like time has come. But we've already seen that it's, it's not until the end of chapter 11 that the seventh trumpet is actually blown. But we're ready for it in the middle of chapter 10. So how do we understand why he says no more delay in verse 6 but he doesn't get around to the seventh trumpet being blown until chapter 11, verse 14. Well, I don't think that the whole intervening passage from chapter 10, verse 8, through chapter 11, verse 14 is actually a delay before the trumpet. That would be a contradiction of chapter 10, verse 6, which said precisely there would be no more delay. So how can that be in this way? I don't think that chapter 10, verse 8, through chapter 11, verse 14, is describing things that follow chronologically from verse 6. It's, it, what, it, what it's doing is, when it's, like, it's as if the angel says, no more delay. And then before, before it happens, what you expect to happen, there's like a, you, 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 leave, you leave that scene for a different scene for just a moment, Right? Uh, it, it, it's like stepping back one more time before, before it, it comes. It's not a delay. It's just the camera shifts. The camera shifts from, from a scene in heaven. It shifts to a view of the world and what is going on in the world before this seventh trumpet is going to be blown. And it's, it's, it's like John is saying, okay, no more delay. Well, before we see that, let's just take one more look at what's going on with the church before the seventh trumpet is re- revealed. And what do we find? It is really re-emphasizing what we've already seen in earlier sections of Revelation. The basic message is that the church will have tremendous difficulty in the world until Christ returns. But that when he returns, the church will conquer and reign with Christ over all his enemies. That's the basic message of this second middle section. But let's take a closer look and see how we arrive at that. One of the weirdest parts of this whole section is in chapter 10, verse 9. It's odd because John was given a little scroll and told to eat it. And that it says that in your mouth it will be sweet as honey, but it will make your stomach, it will, it will make your stomach bitter. What in the world is that about? Well, 
as is very, very often the case in Revelation, the, the background to understanding what that is is found in the Old Testament. Um, hold your place here in Revelation 10. Go back to the Old Testament to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 2. When you get there, I want you to, I want you to um, look with me beginning in chapter 2, verse 9. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9 through chapter 3, verse 3. Ezekiel 2, 9. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it out before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were, writ there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I have given uh, you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So you see the similarities there with what John is told to do with the little scroll in Revelation chapter 10. Now flip back a little further in your Old Testament uh, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 103. Again, you have this association of God's word with sweet to our taste. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. There again, you have similarities to what you see in Revelation 10 about this this little scroll, it's going to be sweet to his mouth, right? So let's, we're done flipping. You can go back to Revelation 10 now. You put all this Old Testament evidence together, and the scroll that John is given, this little scroll, seems to represent the Word of God, just as it does in the Old Testament. And just like those Old Testament examples, the Word or the scroll is sometimes sweet, and in some ways it's bitter, um, and judging from the context of what we see in Revelation 10 and what we've seen in previous chapters, it's the message of the gospel, the message of the word of God that is sweet to the one who loves it, to the one who believes it, but at the same time, it often brings with it bitter persecution, bitter hardships in the world. I mean, something, something very obvious here that, that, that is the best example of what I'm trying to say is the Apostle John himself is sort of emblematic of what's going on here, um, of the whole church waiting for the return of Christ. How so? He's the, he is the very one who, according to this revelation, was at the very moment of writing this, exiled on the island of Patmos. And Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 said he was there. Why? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus but also because of it and of his faithful preaching of it, he endured a lot of bitter persecution for it. He was exiled. This persecution and hardship of the church is given a little more description and definition when we come into chapter 11. John, in his vision, as you come into chapter 11, he sees a vision of the temple. And, and even though by the, writing of this, the time of the writing of this revelation, the temple in Jerusalem would have been 
destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Look at verse 1. When, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. I don't believe that John is talking about the physical building of the temple. But by temple here, I believe he's figuratively talking about the church as a whole. The church is the temple. The church is referred to repeatedly as a temple uh, of, of, of God in the New Testament. First, Tim, First Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, 2 Corinthians 6. Ephesians 2.21. So I take, I take uh, if that's the case, I, I believe, and I believe it is, the temple here is the, is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're taught, how are we to understand in verse 1 when it says that he was given a measuring rod and he was told to measure the church of God or measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. What in the world does that mean, measuring? Well, in Revelation... And, and other places in Scripture, actions like measuring something, counting something, um, symbolize protection, right? Examples, if you want to jot these references down, don't just take my word for it, but you can see that, that measuring and counting as emblematic of, of, of protection. You can see it in Revelation 21, verses 15 and 22 to 27. You can see it in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 5. Zechariah 2, 1 through 5. That's Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 5. Ezekiel 42, 20. Zechariah 2, 1 through 5. All over the place. So at the outset of this chapter, putting all this together, God wants to emphasize that throughout this time of persecution, remember the, the scroll turned bitter in his mouth. Throughout that time, God is going to protect and take care of his church, even when it may not look like it. This is an important point to make because beginning in verse 4 of chapter 11, the church, which is described by two symbols here, two olive trees and two lampstands, the church experiences prolonged and ever-intensifying um, persecution. In fact, we're told in verse 7 that Satan and his demons, I believe that's what's meant here by the beast rises up out of the bottomless pit. This, this beast, Satan and his demons, they rise up to make war, it says, on believers. And in fact, at the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8, they appear to be successful at first in their persecution of believers. It says the evil forces not only make war on believers, but it even says to conquer them and to kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street. And the verse 10 says that the evildoers will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. They rejoice over what appears to be the decline, the downfall, the defeat of the church. That's not where the chapter ends, though, is it? Remember, Jesus promised in Matthew 16 that, that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And it's not surprising then that we read that after a brief time of struggle and seeming defeat for the believers in the world, verse 11 says that after, after a short period of time, a breath of life entered them and they stood up on their feet and, a, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Saw them. And it is at, the, at, at this time 
that the Lord returns for his church. Look at what John says in verse 12. They went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. There are some who believe that there's going to be a secret rapture of the church. Um, anybody who's ever heard of or seen the Left Behind series, it's like, holy moly, where did all the believers go? Like, there's their clothes. They were just standing here, and now they're gone. What in the world happened? Um, I don't think that Scripture teaches a secret rapture. And, and part of that reason is things like we read in verse 12. They go up with a, with a, to heaven with a cloud. There's the cloud again. But their enemies watched them. Their enemies watched them. When Jesus returns and the church is raptured, just not secretly, to be with him, every eye will see, the scripture says. Every eye will see Jesus conquer and the church be triumphant. And having seen now that, that's like the interlude. It's like, no more delay. That's, we're in heaven. No more delay. Before I tell you what that, what's going to come next, let's just see what, let's remind ourselves what's been going on in the world. The church has been struggling. The church has been persecuted. But right before this is, is, uh, is going to come, God is going to raise them up. And it's with that that we come back to the, to the scene in heaven. No more delay. We come to the seventh trumpet, our third and final section quickly chapter 11 verses 15 to 19 in verse 15 we finally come to the sounding of the trumpet the seventh trumpet and the seventh trumpet represents is clear it represents the end it's it's the it's the final and eternal state of all things when christ brings at his return when 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 jesus returns that's the end Right, that's the that's um, just card, cards on the table. It's going to inform. It's going to be made more clear uh, as we move through the book of, of Revelation. I don't, I don't think that Jesus is going to come back, and then there's going to be a, a period of a thousand years before the end comes. I think we're symbolically in that thousand years now, and that when Jesus comes, that's the end. That's what we read. For example, you don't have to turn there, but that's what that's what we see in in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter fifteen, um, the great resurrection tap, resurrection chapter. It says, "But each in its own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at His coming, those who belong to Him, then comes the end." Right? The second coming of Christ is the end of all things, and that's the encouraging thing about this whole section is that while now on, on earth, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, all through this time up into his second coming, the church may have appeared weak and feeble. And you had a point we see in chapter 11, verse 10, where the enemies of the church will think they won. That, 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 that well, they will think that Jesus and his church lost. They can appear stamped out. But now... After he returns, Jesus reigns. And you have this spine-tingling declaration by the hosts of heaven in verse 15 where they famously say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Yes, ma'am.
I think the tribulation has been going on since the first coming of Christ. That, that yeah, I think, that, I think the tribulation was going on. I think Peter and Paul and John experienced the tribulation. I, I, think, I think martyrs throughout the history of the church have, have experienced tribulation. I think tribulation is going on in parts of the world today. I think the tribulation is the, is the Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. And it's, it's, it's ongoing until Jesus comes back. I don't think it's a short period of time. I think we're in it right now. I think we've been in it since Jesus ascended back into heaven. You're welcome. So in verse 16, the 24 elders, in my view, representing all the redeemed of the Lord, they worship around his throne. And there are some noteworthy aspects of the song that they sing. Interestingly, note that God is addressed in verse 17 as the one, quote, who is and who was. You, up to this point, you've often seen the Lord referred to as him who is and who was and who is to come. Who is to come is left off because there is no more to come. He just is and who was. And in that, in that day that, that he comes, two things will happen in this song. Those who fear the Lord will be rewarded. Those who don't will be destroyed. Those are the points emphasized in the song. And so we wrap it up with, with this. Just let these things be an encouragement to you. Let, let them help you keep the, 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 the things of this world in perspective. Um, don't, don't let news outlets, don't let social media interpret the world you live in for you. Um, let Scripture do it for you. This is what will help you persevere in Christ to the end. I've actually left time for you to discuss around your tables, and I'm going to take it. So I'm going to pray, and then, and then you can discuss. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for your word. And I pray that you would give us uh, grace to, to, um, to discuss this sobering but hopeful and confidence-instilling word uh, together for the last few minutes of our time. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What does this passage teach you about God? What does it teach you about ourselves? What does it call us to do? Go. Go.